It is so good to be with you this evening. It's such an honor to be able to open up the Word of God on this and in this very important book, the book of Zechariah. And we desire that the Lord will be honored at this time. So will you open with me in a word of prayer? Our God and Father, we come before you and we desire that as we come to your word, in its practicality, in its convicting power, that it would drive us not to just change our lives, not just to change our attitude and our actions, but to fix our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, to instill in us love for him, turning to him, seeking him, prizing him, being in awe of who you are, and fixating centrally and exclusively upon you. And so be honored now, O God, be glorified, magnify yourself, and in doing so, transform us so that we can worship you all the more. Exalt your word at this time, in your name we pray, amen. We are beginning a series in the book of Zechariah over the next few weeks, and whenever I talk to somebody about the book of Zechariah and speak to them about writing a commentary on it or preaching through Zechariah, there is typically one of, one of three kinds of reactions that people give to me. Some, the first group, say, that's amazing. I love that book. Oh, I, I love this about that book, and I love that about that book, and, and do you, do you, did you notice this, and did you notice that, and, and they have just a great affection for this book, and they just gush about how spectacular the book of Zechariah is. And then there's a second group of people, and they're a little bit different. They say, you're preaching the book of what? Ze- you're preaching the book of Zach? No, Zechariah. Oh, oh, never read it. That's often what I hear. And a third group says, oh, I actually did read the book of Zechariah. Oh, that's great. What'd you think? Never understood a word. Have no idea what this book means. Well, whatever group you are in, this is why we are here tonight, because you need to understand this book. This is an amazing book. This is a spectacular book. This is a book filled with visions. This is a book that convicts us about the nature of worship. This is a book that establishes and pays for us the plan of God for the future and the plan of God throughout all history. Zechariah spans all of time from the moment that Zechariah is prophesying to the very end. It includes prophecies about individuals like Alexander the Great and, of course, the ultimate hero of all time, Jesus. It even prophesies about his ministry in immense detail, that he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, pierced on our behalf, betrayed and resurrected and will return again. It deals with, this book does, the Antichrist and Armageddon and the Millennial Kingdom. This book is filled with promises. 
and prophecies. It covers subjects like Israel and all of their destiny and all that the Lord will do for them, both to purify them and to give them what he has promised to them in his full glory. This book not only deals with Israel, it deals with the nations and how God will rule over every single country and every single region unto his own honor. And ultimately and focally, this book deals with the most central and key reality, and that is the Messiah the Messiah, and we see his ministry, and we see his perfections, that there is no one like him. He is king and priest, perfect in both, uniting what could never be united in himself. He is the one who will be coronated in the end with such a spectacular moment that the whole world will be in awe. He is the one where there are many heroes, and there are many individuals in the time of the Gentiles, but he is the focal point of it all. And there will be a moment when Israel will be in its most desperate strength in the end times, and he will come in the darkest hour of Israel, and it will become their brightest morning because he has arrived on the scene. This is what Zechariah proclaims. Zechariah proclaims that when Christ returns, everything will be made new. There will be new light and new water and new land. God will restore every single thing. This is the nature of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is an amazing book conveyed in spectacular ways. And on top of all that, if you understand the book of Zechariah, you will begin to unravel and clarify things throughout the Bible. In the book of Zechariah, you have a flying scroll. You say, what is the significance of that? We will talk about it more a different time, but just know this. Why does the Bible emphasize a flying scroll in Zechariah? Because that perhaps is connected with the very scroll that Jesus receives in Revelation 4 and 5. Zechariah talks about horses of different colors. Why? Because it sets up for what happens in Revelation where there are different horsemen that John beholds. You probably heard of the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. You meet her when she's a little girl in the book of Zechariah. If you understand the book of Zechariah, there are so many things in the Bible that come to life and that connect and that clarify. There are blessings upon blessings in this book. And there is a reason why there is so much covered in such a short period of time, because that's actually the message of the book. You see, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And what this book is, it is a catalog of God saying, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. God remembers everything. He remembers everything he has promised He has remembered things that perhaps we have forgotten. He has remembered things that sometimes we don't even know he promised because we didn't bother to read it. You know, sometimes with children, you say, hey, uh, do you remember when I said that we were going to do this one thing or have this one activity or have this treat? And they say no, and you say, good. Well, just keep it that way. And that's it, and we move on. We are forgetful people. We are people who don't even read all of God's promises because we haven't studied his word hard enough. Nevertheless, our God is so good. Our God is so faithful. He has a book to say this. What you have forgotten, I remember. What you never listened to me and never understood, I remember. God remembers. He never forgets. And this book is one of assurance. This book is one of comfort. This book is one of commitment that God has recalled all that he has said, and he will follow it through. And one of those blessings 
that he has remembered. One of those promises that he has brought to the forefront, in fact, it's the first promise found in the book of Zechariah, is this promise, the promise of repentance. The promise of repentance. That's how the book begins. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God not only promised to judge his people, but he promised that one day he would offer them repentance. And Zechariah says to Israel at this point of time, as they're returning home from the exile, God has not forgotten that promise. And this reminds us of a very important truth, a very important reality. Repentance is a grace. Repentance and the offer of it is a fulfillment of a promise. Repentance isn't what you have to do then. It's what you get to do. It's what you get to do. There are lots of things in life that we feel like we have to do. You have to take out the trash. You have to do chores. You have to do everything on your to-do list. You have to eat vegetables. You have to go to meetings. You have to clean things. And sometimes in our lives, we add to that list, oh, I have to repent. We don't like asking for forgiveness. We don't like admitting that we are wrong. We don't like turning back to the Lord. We like all kinds of pie. We just don't like humble pie. That's us. We think repentance is something I have to do. It's commanded. It's a burden. I'll just get it over with so I can get on with the rest of my life. But here's what Zechariah remembers, and this is what he reminds us. Repentance is a promise. Repentance is when God remembers what he guaranteed to his people. And he says, you don't have to do this. You get to do this. This isn't just something that comes automatically. This is something that God must go out of his way, in a sense, to permit. God did not forget any of his promises, including the promise and the grace of repentance. This is something you get to do. Now, to be clear, in the midst of this book, filled with blessing upon blessing upon blessing, repentance leads the way because that is the gateway to all of those blessings. But even having said that, let's be very, very clear that repentance doesn't merit it. It doesn't earn those things. It doesn't cause those things. Nevertheless, it is connected. Nevertheless, those who receive God's promises are characterized by repentance. But repentance is a grace. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is God's goodness and his mercy. And we can never forget that. And so in the opening verses of Zechariah 1, the way Zechariah frames repentance gives us four truths. Four truths about the grace of repentance. Four truths about the grace of repentance. And let's look at the first of those truths now. The circumstances of repentance. The circumstances of repentance. This is found in Zechariah 1, verse 1. The circumstances of repentance. And here we read in the text that it's the eighth month, the second year of King Darius, and the word of Yahweh comes to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, the prophet. And you say, that's a date. Yes. That's chronology. Yes. What is there to learn? Is there any theology in that? Yes, there is. 
All of God's word is profitable. And when we understand this date, we understand not only the history that surrounds the book of Zechariah, but then we also understand the purpose of Zechariah better. And then on top of that, we understand the theology and the circumstances of repentance that indeed repentance is a grace. You see what happens and what has been happening around this very time Really, just a month or less before, there is another contemporary of Zechariah, and his name is Haggai. And Haggai has been prophesying, and he has been proclaiming, because Israel has returned home from their time in Babylon. God has sent them to Babylon in judgment, and now he's bringing them back home, and there is a commission for them to do. And that is to rebuild the temple. And there are two reasons why they needed to rebuild this building. One, it is because it is about God's plan continuing. It is about God's plan continuing. You see, God has always had a temple at every juncture of redemptive history. He has always been present from the time of Bethel in Genesis to the time of Solomon in Moses with the tabernacle and temple to the time of now in Zechariah, there's a temple. In the time of Jesus, there's a temple. You say, where's the temple right now? We are the temple. When the church gathers, there is a temple. We are the temple of God. There is always a temple in God's plan. And so God commissions his people to continue his plan by constructing this temple. But it's not just for that reason that God desires Israel to rebuild the temple. It's not just a matter of plan. Second of all, it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of priority. The temple is all about worship. The temple is all about pointing to God. And God is demanding his people, re-engage in a relationship with me. Worship me. Have your priorities straight. Love God, build that temple, connect back with him. And so Haggai is preaching to encourage Israel and to convict them in very practical ways. You need to get your priorities straight. You need to re-engage in the plan of God. And he reminds them of things like this, where he says, isn't it interesting that you guys build your own house, but you don't build God a house? How does that work? He reminds them of their hypocrisy. He reminds them of their skewed understanding. He reminds them of their disobedience, and he calls them to repent. He calls them to repent. And having done so, they begin to rebuild the temple, but Israel's discouraged because the temple that they're reconstructing, it's much smaller and less grand than what Solomon ever had. And so Haggai makes a prophecy. He makes a prophecy on the 21st of the seventh month, and he says this, that what you are building now, you may think it's so small and you may think it's so insignificant, but God is going to use it. And it is part of a succession. It is part of an unbroken line of God's plan that will culminate in the end with the greatest glory because God will fill the earth with his glory from the temple. And Haggai says, and one day, on the very day that I am prophesying, the very day that I am prophesying, sometime down in the future, but the very month and the day, we will be here and we will be celebrating that God had used the moment years and years back for his glory. That's what he guaranteed to happen, that the latter glory will be greater than the former. And you say, well, that's wonderful for those people. Does that apply to us? Absolutely, because after all, If we remember, they weren't the only ones building the temple. Even now, we are called the what? The temple. We are part of that unbroken line. We are part of God's plan. We are part of that agenda to continue God's work of temple. That is what is going on. And here is the simple message. You may think 
that what you are doing and what I am doing and our obedience and faithfulness to Christ is small. It's insignificant. It's not a big deal, but God will use it for his glory. The latter glory will exceed the former. He will use you and me and all those who are obedient to him and his people to that very end because we are all part of this work of the temple of God. And you might say, wow, that's encouraging. That, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, your work is not in vain. What will God do? What will that look like? How will that turn out in the future exactly? Give me more detail. That is what the Israelites would have wanted from Haggai. Tell me more about that and the glories that are to come so that I can know and persevere and have perspective in what I am doing now and that these efforts really won't be in vain, but they will produce a glory that I cannot even imagine. And in the graciousness of God, it's almost like Amazon two-day shipping. 21st of the seventh month, this prophecy goes out. People are hearing it. They're thinking about it. They're excited about it. They want more information. They're curious, and they're asking God for more information. And lo and behold, what happens? Zechariah 1.1. On what day of the month? What month? The eighth month. About a week later, about just one week later, God raises up Zechariah to say, what you are asking about Israel, I'm about to answer. And you want to know what God is going to do? And God reveals so many amazing prophecies about that latter glory, that God's glory will fill the earth, that Jerusalem won't need a wall because God will be dwelling in their midst, and that they won't have darkness, but they'll only have light because God's glory is there. And they'll have a wall of fire. They will be the most safe as they've ever been because God's glory is surrounding them. And that God will have his son reigning in their midst and his light will be our light and all of these different things. And he will be the one who constructs the temple in the end. And in doing so, he will honor what Israel and all those who have before him have done. And that will be recognized. And all of these truths are just pouring out of Zechariah's mouth. And that's why he's prophesying on the eighth of the month. To put it simply, think about it this way. Yes, Israel is in exile. Israel is the underdog at this moment. It is the second year of Darius. But the word of Yahweh has come. The word of Yahweh has come to encourage one whose name means Yahweh remembers. And everything will be glorious because of what God has said. And not only that, what, how, what does he remember? Well, Zechariah is the son of Berechiah. Berechiah means blessing, blessing. What does God remember? All of his blessings. And here's what's so beautiful. Berechiah is the son of Edo. You know what Edo means? His timing. His timing. And here's the message. God remembers, and he has perfect timing. He hasn't forgotten. He will set everything up in its time to be the greatest blessing, to be the greatest promise, to be everything that you would want it to be and more. Your work will never be in vain promises and glory and God's presence and God's love and fulfillment is awaiting us. It's just a matter of time. It's not an if, but when. It's not an if, but when. And that, that Yahweh remembers and that Yahweh blesses and that Yahweh has perfect timing and all of this message, that's the circumstances for God's call to repentance. Why? 
is God calling his people to repent? Because he wants to give them all of that. Why is God calling his people to turn back to him? So that he can give them all the promises and all the glory and everything that he has in store for them. This is such an important reminder, brothers and sisters. Sometimes when we want people to ask for forgiveness, we want our pound of flesh. When we ask people, when we say, you need to say sorry to me, we don't want their best. We want to feel good. We want to feel vindicated. We want, we want people to say, I was wrong. Yes, you were. Say sorry to me. That's what we want. We want vindication. When God wants people to repent, you know why he wants them to repent? So he can give them everything he has desired for them, for their good. When God calls us to repentance, brothers and sisters, it isn't just to pound it out on us and make us admit that we're wrong so that God can feel better about himself. That is not what is going on at all. The circumstances for repentance are the wonderful things that he has in store for all those who know Christ. That's the grace of repentance. He has a gift awaiting, and he says, repent so that you can have it. That is why it's not just that you have to repent, but you get to repent. You get to repent. Well, we don't just have the circumstances of repentance. We also have the context of repentance, and this is found in verse 2. In verse 2, Yahweh announces through Zechariah that Yahweh was angry, exceedingly wrathful against your fathers. And on one hand, on the one hand, this is a very important reminder that Yahweh is wrathful against sin, that Yahweh has fury, that Yahweh is holy. Why? Because often in our lives, we just want to depict, and our society for sure depicts God as some cosmic vending machine. You just punch a button, say a prayer, and you get whatever you want. In fact, God is even worse or demoted below a cosmic vending machine because with at least a cosmic vending machine, you actually have to pay something to get what you want. With God, we get mad when we don't get what we want for free. That's how upset we get with him, and that's how we view God sometimes, and God has to remind us he is not that. He is not at our beck and call. He is not the one subjected to us. We are subjected to him. He is holy, and when there is sin, he does not turn a blind eye to it. He has wrath, a holy, just, righteous indignation against sin, and From one end of the Bible to the other, the scripture makes that clear. In Genesis 3, we see that reality. When God chastises Abraham, we see that reality. When God disciplines Jacob and Jacob's mother, we see that reality. We see that with Moses and with Pharaoh and with Israel in the wilderness. God judges sin. We see that in the book of Joshua with the city of Ai and Jericho. God punishes. We see that in the time of the judges. We see that with Israel and Saul and David. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. We see that with the kings and with Solomon. God will even split an entire nation apart just to make the point. And then on top of that, at the end, and Israel had just experienced this, God will send his own people into exile, subjecting them to horrific acts, all to demonstrate one point and all to 
expand and expound and execute a single reality, and that is this, that God has wrath against sin. There is a thousands of years of history to demonstrate that our God is truly a holy God, and he is angry and wrathful against sin. In fact, the very word wrath here used in verse 2 is the same word used in Deuteronomy to describe Israel's exile, and God has said, and God has shown, and Israel has seen, yes, our God is not some pushover that we can just manipulate on our whims. He is God. He is over us. And we do not dictate to him. Rather, we are under his dictate. That is what we must remember. And so Yahweh is exceedingly furious against your fathers. Now, here's what's fascinating, though. Here's what's fascinating. On one hand, we know that's true. But on the other hand, notice what the text says. It says Yahweh was exceedingly angry. And on top of that, it says Yahweh was exceedingly angry with your fathers. Now, just hear the language carefully. Imagine talking to somebody or even your own children and using these words. I was going to discipline you. I was going to make you take out the trash. What is everyone expecting? But? There's something different going to happen. I was going to do this. I was this way, implying that I'm not this way right now. You see, the context of repentance is this, that God was wrathful, that God had to cease wrath. Why does repentance exist? It doesn't exist because you have to merit or you have to cause or you have to come and initiate your own repentance and you have to go and pull yourself by your own bootstraps and kind of broach that conversation with God and start to negotiate with him. No, that is not the case. It is this. God said, I was angry. I was furious, but now I'm going to show mercy. And it's because of my mercy and it's because of my grace, and it's because I put anger aside, and it's because I restrained my own wrath and my own fury that you can come to me in repentance. You see, brothers and sisters, repentance isn't just what leads you to the gifts that God has for us. That would be good enough, and we saw that in the circumstances of repentance, that God had all these wonderful things in his plan in store for all of his people, and that repentance was the gateway to that. That would be good enough, but what God reminds us here through Zechariah is this, that repentance is the gift. Repentance is the gift Because it presumes that God has shown grace, that God has satisfied his own wrath, that God has elected to show mercy. Repentance isn't just the gateway to the gift, it is the gift. It is what he has given to us, because it is his grace enacted in and of itself. That is why you don't just have to repent, you get to repent. You get to repent. Don't forget, don't forget, when repentance is offered, it's not that you have to initiate it. It's that God already gave it to you as a present, an opportunity to do that. You get to repent. You don't have to repent. And so we have the circumstances of repentance, and we have the context of repentance. And now, in verse 3 and following, we have the command the command for repentance. We know 
we know how precious repentance is. We know that it leads to so many blessings. And that's why God has repentance, because it is for our good. And repentance itself is a gift, because it is the exercise of God's grace. So let's understand what repentance really is. And by the way, when you understand what repentance is, then you'll understand this is grace upon grace upon grace. This is grace upon grace upon grace. There is real accountability with repentance. We see that in verse 3. God says, you shall say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts. This is Yahweh's full power. It is that he has charged the heavenly host to enact whatever he has said. There is real accountability here. There is real authority here. We don't come to God on our own terms. Grace is a gift. You don't set the terms of a gift. You don't wish that the gift was one way and not the other way. It reminds me of a time, one time I was at the master's college and I was first teaching and there was a very gracious individual taking one of my classes and he owned several fast food restaurants, one of them being Baja Fresh. And he said, I would just love to treat all of your students in this class every day for for a semester to Baja Fresh. And I said, wow, that's so generous, especially since I'm starving. This is so good. And a young lady who overheard this conversation went up to him and said, oh, that's very kind, but I like Pizza Hut better. Could you do Pizza Hut instead? I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. And the gentleman was very gracious. He said, oh, you know, I have some friends. Maybe I could set that up. And we don't want to set the terms of a gift. You don't set the terms of a gift. You have no right to set the terms of a gift. God sets the terms of the gift. And the gift is repentance. Let's understand how he dictates this to take place. Yahweh of hosts has spoken. This is the way it will be. And God says, turn to me. Turn to me. The word turn is so important. It is the very substance of the nature of repentance. And when you turn, you are doing two actions simultaneously. You are turning away from something and you are turning to something. We understand that. And that is the fundamental nature of repentance. It is turning away from something, repudiating, rejecting, disconnecting, turning your back on, cutting off from one thing and then turning to another thing. This is a 180 degree turn. That's pretty important too. This is why ministries should never be labeled 360. 360 is apostasy. We don't do that. (laughs) 180. That is what we are looking for. Turn from one thing to another. And here, what we have, and it will be expounded and explained soon enough, you turn from your sin. You disconnect from it. You cut it off. You turn your back on it. It has no connection with you any longer. You are freed from it. You never look at it again. But here's what's fascinating. The other side of repentance, though, is not just turning from something, but turning to something. We know that. We know it's total change. We know it's total confession. We know it's total transformation. But it's not just total transformation of activity or action or works or behavior or attitude. Sometimes we think repentance is 
turn from your sin and turn to do something better. Put off your sin and put on the opposite of whatever your sin is. And we think of it as changing one behavior to another, changing one attitude to another, changing one action to another. That may be included, but do you understand and do you see in the text, what does God say? He doesn't say turn to righteousness. He doesn't say turn to good works. He doesn't say turn to good deeds. He says turn to me. Turn to me. True repentance, brothers and sisters, is not just about moral change. True repentance, brothers and sisters, is not just about behavioral modification. The world can change their behavior. The world can change their attitudes. The world can become more disciplined in certain ways and become a better and skinnier person, whatever. The world can do that. God, though, is not just saying change your behavior. He is saying turn not just to good deeds, turn not just to your own works, turn not just to a certain pattern of life, turn to me. That's what he's after. True repentance is all about love for God. True repentance is I hate my sin and what I really want is not just a better lifestyle or a different pattern of behavior or some different kind of attitude or better positive thinking. It is I want God. I love him. Him and I want to know Him more, and I want to adore Him more deeply, and I want Him in my life, and I want to think more highly of Him, and I want to be consumed with Him, and I want Him to influence and saturate every part of me, and to know Him so well that all I can do is worship Him and dedicate my life to Him. God does not say, Turn to your good works, God says, Turn to me. That is the nature of true repentance. That is what God is after. If all we do in our lives is we think, I'll just improve myself. I'll just get better and better. You have missed the point. God is not about you. God is about him. And true repentance is seeking and loving him. God does not say, turn and do better. Turn and do something different. God says, turn, return to me. Return to me. You know, the greatest gift of repentance is not just the blessings that you will receive. It's not just that God is so gracious to give you the gift of repentance. It's this, that you get God. That you get God. And here's how far and here's how deep you get him. God says, Return to me. And notice the next phrase. And I will return to you. And I will return to you. This is profound. This is profound. What does it mean for Israel, specifically in this original context, that God says, I will return to you? Well, it's a wordplay that has multiple layers all packaged together. It means that Israel can return home because when God returns back to them in prophecy, he will return them back from their exile and return back to them everything that they had lost. And they had lost a lot and they had suffered a lot and they had received a lot of chastisement. And God says, all of that, all of the loss, all of the hurt, it will be turned around. It will be turned around. 
But it's not just the removal and the reconciliation of the negative. It is not just the conciliation of the negative. It is that God then will return and he will give them everything that they ever desired, everything that they promised in full. And in fact, beyond fullness, beyond what they could ever ask or imagine, he will give them all of that. And all of that is predicated, both the loss and the gain, all of that is predicated upon this. God promises this when he says, I will return to you. It doesn't just mean that I will have a relationship with you. It means this, my glory will return. My glory will return. One day, God promises that his glory will fill the entire earth, and it will all resound with his glory. He promises this in Ezekiel, and it's prophesied in Zechariah. And he promises that his glory will be the only glory. It will be such the only glory that it will be the only light. That's why there is no more sun, moon, and stars in the end times, because any competition with the glory of God will be eradicated so that we only have pure glory. That's it. And it will fill every ends of the earth and it will fill us from the inside out. And God says, I will return to you and you will have everything and all the hurt and all the loss will be wiped away. Why? Because I will be there with you like that. I will return to you. And by the way, brothers and sisters, for us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ will return like that for us too. That will be a real return where we will see him face to face and we will have that kind of glorious relationship and that kind of intimacy and that kind of closeness and that kind of personal relationship from the inside out. We will know him like that. You know, when we ask God for repentance, in repentance for forgiveness, God can grant it and say, we're good now. You're not dead. Goodbye. He could do that. He could do that. Even with Israel in the past, in Exodus 32 and 33, when Israel was committing the sin of the golden calf, God said, I will spare you, but you can go by yourselves to the promised land without me. God has the right to do that. God can say, I forgive you, but we're not gonna have a relationship. I will spare your life. But that's it. And that would be fair. In fact, that's more than fair. That's good and merciful. But here's what God says. If you return to me, which is just such a small turn, I will return everything to you. I will give you all that you have lost back. I will give you everything that I planned for you. And I will give you me. That's what God declares. That is the grace of repentance. Repentance isn't something you have to do. It's something you get to do. It's not only the gateway to blessing, and that's a blessing. It's not only a gift in and of itself because it's grounded in the grace of God. It's the greatest, greatest gift because in it you get God And not only do you get God, God says, I will return to you. You get all of him. You get all of him forever. That is why it's not just you have to repent. You get to repent. Never forget, brothers and sisters, God says, turn to me and I will return to you. I will return to you.
they are inextricably linked, but they are inextricably linked in blessing. God not only instructs on what to do in repentance and this command for repentance, but he also instructs what not to do. What not to do. Verse 4, Zechariah says, Do not be like your fathers, whom the former prophets called out to them, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. Within instructing Israel on what not to do, Zechariah explains another side of that turning. Yes, you turn to God. You don't just turn to good behavior. You turn to him, amen and amen, but you have to turn from something. And notice what Zechariah reminds Israel that they were supposed to turn from. They were supposed to turn from their evil ways and also their evil deeds. What's the difference between evil ways and evil deeds? What it means is this, turn from every evil lifestyle overall, overall patterns of life, all of that should be rejected. Any kind of habitual sin, any kind of pattern of life, any kind of characteristic that pervades your existence and your attitude and mentality, all of that should be repudiated. But it's not just that. It's not just those big things that characterize the landscape, the walk of your life. What does he also say? Turn from your evil what? Deeds. Every single one every single individual act, every single individual work, cut that off. Sometimes we think, oh, I'll just repent of the big things. Amen, we need to repent of the big things. But we forget, we repent of every single thing that offends God, big or small, one time or many times, pervasive or individual. We repent of it all. We repent of it all. That's what was supposed to happen for Israel. That's what's supposed to happen all the time, even for us. That's the nature of repentance. We turn from every single possible sin that there is. But here's what you don't do, and here's what Israel did wrongly. Zechariah says, they did not listen, and they did not heed me. The most common verb about the Bible, about God's word, about revelation in Scripture, is listening. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Hear, Israel, this. Hear, Israel, that. Listen. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. Hearing and listening is the most common verb for all of Scripture, and that is because when you listen, you don't talk. And God says, People shouldn't be talking over my word, alongside of my word, undermining my word or anything. All you are supposed to do is listen. And when you truly listen, you obey. You obey. It's just like what we talk with our children. If we don't think that they're paying attention or if they didn't respond properly, what do we say to them? You're not listening. Listen to the word of God. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to hear it, understand it, and obey it, and heed it thereby. That is the nature of listening. Israel never did that. Israel never did that. When they were confronted with their sin, when they were called to repentance, not realizing that this is what you get to do, not just what you have to do, they refused to respond properly. 
But it goes one step further than that. Notice it says this, they did not heed me or they did not pay attention to me. This takes it one step further. It isn't just that their overarching response is negated and that they refuse to abide and obey and submit to the word of God. It's that they didn't heed at all. They didn't pay attention at all. Sometimes we tell people, hey, it went in one ear and out the other. And that's bad. For Israel, this is what this means. It didn't even go in one ear. They didn't let it go in one ear. They just stopped the words. They didn't even want to hear them. It's as if it never existed. That's the idea of this term. They were so hard-hearted. The words couldn't even penetrate them on the most superficial level. They were completely ignorant of this call of repentance, even though it was blaring right in their face. We know what to do in repentance. You run to Christ. You run to God. You get rid of every sin. You strip away everything that encumbers you. Here's what not to do when somebody confronts us with sin. Here's what not to do. Don't follow through. Or, even worse, don't even pay attention. Just completely ignore it. Sometimes it is hard to hear the rebuke of a friend, to be confronted with one's errors. But Zechariah reminds us, don't, don't run away from that. Don't be hard-hearted to it. Don't let it go from one ear out the other. Don't block it from even entering into one ear. Embrace it. Embrace it. Why? Because repentance isn't what you have to do. It's what you get to do. It's what you get to do. This is a blessing. This is a blessing. Zechariah reminds us that Repentance is a grace. And so there is a command of repentance. And it's simple. Turn from every single possible sin. Cut it off. Be sanctified in that way. And don't just turn and put on opposite behavior or opposite attitudes. Yes, that must come and that must be true. But turn to God. Love him. Pursue him. Grasp for him and refuse then any moment where you are tempted to refuse the rebuke of a friend or refuse the confrontation of scripture. Instead, just embrace all of those moments because we want to know God and anything that can bring us closer to him is a joy for us so that we can be in more conformity to him and please him all the more. That's the true nature of repentance. And it's something you get to do because in it, you get God and you get God in full. Turn to me and I will turn to you. Well, there is one last point on Zechariah's message on the grace of repentance. We've talked about the circumstances of repentance and the context of repentance and the command for repentance but we need to see the consequences, the consequences when you don't repent, the consequences when you don't repent. Sometimes in our lives, and we see it even in the book of Romans, that people presume upon grace. People presume upon grace. People in Paul's day, they presumed upon God's grace because they said, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? 
Maybe grace gives us a license. Maybe God is so kind and so gracious that that we can just do what we want and he'll just be really relaxed about it. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, repentance is a grace. Yes, it's something you get to do, but you still have to do it. You still have to do it. There's still a seriousness to it. There's still an earnestness to it. There are consequences for unrepentance. And look at verse 5 and 6. It says this, your fathers, where are they? That's a good question. That's a very convicting question. Zechariah says, look around. Look around. Where are your parents? And here's the answer. They're dead. Why? Because they died in exile. They died in exile. They're not here anymore. And it's a reminder, you can't ignore the word of God. You can't suppress this. You can't live in denial. You cannot outsmart God's exhortation and commands. You cannot outwit it. You cannot overpower God's word. His call for repentance is binding. You get to do it, yes, but you have to do it. You have to do it. Where are your parents? Where are your fathers? Did any escape? No. No. God has a perfect track record for judging sin. You are not the exception. That's what we have to understand. Speaking of which, notice the next phrase. Did the prophets live forever? How about the prophets? Did they live forever? And you say, wait, but the prophets, they really tried to obey God. They really tried to follow him. True. And God's point here is a parallel point, which is this. The prophets are still sinful in their own ways. They still fall short of the glory of God. And do you think God gave them a pass for that? Just because they did some things right. Just because he used them. And the answer is, no, they died too. They don't live forever. Not on their own. Not on their own righteousness. The clearest example of this in the Old Testament is Moses, is it not? Moses did so much for the Lord. God used him mightily. Ten plagues leading Israel out of Egypt. Bearing up with them for 40 years. That takes a lot of patience wrote five books of the Bible. That is the foundation for the scriptures. This guy has a lot of credentials. He hits one rock. And it's over. You think, man, if I hit a rock, I hit rocks every day on the freeway. It's a reminder. Even the messenger of God's word is not above the message of God's word. It's a somber thought. It's a somber thought. If God didn't even grant Moses an exemption, an exception, do you think he really will grant you or me that? No, no. You cannot outsmart God's word and you are not exempt from it either. This is the all-encompassing, all exacting standard. That's what we have to understand. No man can outpower it. No man can outmerit it. Rather, verse 6, surely, God says, my word. Why? Because it's God's words filled with his authority and my statutes. It's his statutes, which are determinative and defining, which I have commanded, filled with his sovereign might. 
And who are we? And who are we at best? Notice what the phrase says, my slaves, the prophets. Let's get it straight. We don't command God's word. God's word commands us. God's word and God himself is the king. We are the slaves. So what makes us think that we're too good to repent? Or it's just beneath us? Or we're the exception? Or it doesn't apply to us? Or we don't really have to pay attention to it? This is God's word. This is not a suggestion. This is not an opinion. This is not a helpful hint for life. This is filled with authority. And we must take it that way. And God says, did it not overtake you? The answer is yes. Oh, yes. Israel faced it. Israel had to encounter it. Israel couldn't escape it. The idea of overtaking is to catch up to somebody. Your sin will find you out. God will find you out. And we must live to fear that, even as we know it's a grace to repent. And here's what's amazing. Notice what the rest of verse 6 says. So the fathers, they returned, and they said, As Yahweh purposed to do to us according to our ways and according to our works, so he has done with us. Look at that phrase, according to our ways and according to our works. God will exact judgment exactly according to what you have done, both broad and specific, exactly what the prophets encouraged and exhorted and commanded Israel to turn from. God will hold us accountable for every single thing. And that's what they learned. And they learned it the hard way. Speaking of learning it the hard way, look at verse six more carefully. What did the fathers do? They returned. They returned and said these words. They returned and they acknowledged this. And have you not noticed that the word return is said a lot in this passage? What is the nature? What is the command for repentance? Return to God. And what will God do? Return to you. And what did the fathers do? Return. Yes, you must return to God. That's absolutely crucial. But at the same time, here is what Zechariah is reminding the people. Here is his final exhortation. Choose which way you will return. Because one way or another you will. One way or another you will. Either you return to Yahweh as you turn away from all your evil works and all your evil deeds and all your evil ways, or you will return in shame. And you will return acknowledging that God has exacted his total punishment against you. And you will return in humiliation and you will return under discipline. Choose which way you return. One way in repentance or the other way in condemnation. Which way will you return? That is Zechariah's question. That is Zechariah's cry. And yes, we remember then, you get to repent, but that does not negate. You have to. You have to. Choose which way you will return. And so repentance, repentance, we we often don't like it. We think it's hard. We think we have to do it. And while that's true, we can never forget, you get to do it. You get to do it. You get to do it because it's the gateway to blessings. God isn't doing this just to feel good about himself or, or have his pound of flesh. He's doing this for your good, for my good. And repentance itself is a grace because it's indicative that God has shown mercy and grace in restraining and subduing his own wrath against us. 
And in this repentance, we inherit God. There is nothing better than that. Yes, you have to do it, but yes, you get to do it. This is a blessing, and we should thank God that we can repent. We should thank God that it's not over when we sin. We should thank God that every time we have evil ways in our life or evil deeds, there is this opportunity to return and to him and from our sin. And so for Israel in Zechariah's time, God reminds them with this very opening phrase, God has not forgotten his promises, starting with the first one that you need, that is repentance. And from here, there is a gateway to all that he has in store for you. God is faithful. And that should already tell you repentance is what you get to do. Repentance is because God loves and God is merciful and God is faithful and God remembers. And for us then, let us repent. Let us repent, leaving behind us every evil way and each evil deed. Let us repent, turning not just to different kinds of behavior or attitudes or actions, but turning to God, pursuing him, wanting him, being saturated and immersed in him, desiring and loving and adoring him. Return to God, not just changing your life, returning it all to him and knowing this, knowing this, that you can only return to God because of his grace. Knowing this, that returning to God brings forth blessing, but knowing this most of all, return to God because he will return to you. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you for repentance. Lord, sometimes we confess that we feel like repentance is a drudgery. We don't like it because we don't want to be humble and admit that we were wrong. But help us to see that this is a grace. We are so thankful for your mercy that you allow us over and over and over to come back to you, to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ, to have him all the more. And so may we love repentance as it draws us closer to your son. May we hate the sin that demands it, but may we love the act as it pushes us and compels us to fix our eyes on the things above and to grow deeper into the God whose depths are unsearchable. So may we honor you and give thanks to you for repentance, recognizing your immense, faithful, loyal, good hand in it all. And may we also then repent rightly on the terms that you have set and grow all the more honoring in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen.